This is the fourth day, isn't it? Well, good, good morning. How's everyone? Good morning. Excellent. All right. Well, for those of you here present and those who are joining us online for our last On the Way, the journey of the year is concluding today. Um, and we are finishing talking about Revelation. So we're finishing with a bang, as it were. Um, but before we begin our finishing, as it were, let's uh, go to God in prayer, if we could. God, thank you again for the gathering of these folks uh, in person and virtually for this whole year, uh, and for the journey that we have been on digging into the Bible, into the scriptures in, in a way that's been enlightening, surprising, uh, confirming, and challenging. Uh, bless us, Lord, in this time together as we do a little bit more of a deep dive into this confusing book of Revelation that it might maybe not make more sense, uh, but perhaps uh, speak to us in a way it had not before. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So um, we watched the video last, the video last week, and um, we, um, uh, I hope that video was helpful. I think we had some good conversation after that video. I think one of the main things about the book is that we are at a we we have to acknowledge I think that we and when I mean we I mean middle to upper class middle white Christians we are at a disadvantage in reading Revelation in the context in the, we it, we are not the audience that this is directed for so how we position ourselves when we read the book is critical and I think if we acknowledge that up front then the the, the message of Revelation becomes a little more clear uh, and what it's about. And it's not confusing and it's not scary, um, but that it's a hopeful message to people who need to hear a message of hope, um, who are not in a hopeful position at all. So what we're going to do today is we're going to kind of walk through some of the parts of the book, uh, some of the high points I would suggest. Um, but again, apocalyptic literature, this is not narrative, fun stories. It's not poetry um, that's, you know, beautiful imagery. Um, it's, it's not even like boring laws that at least you can kind of sink your teeth into things a little bit. This is strange stuff. And so I just want to acknowledge that because the head might spin a little bit. And, and I want us to keep at the top of everything that we look at just again. This is a message for people who are in a very hopeless situation that need to hear a message of hope. So if we can keep that as our overarching thing, um, then we're good to go. It's obvious that this Bible, was not, Revelation, was not used very much. It's like the pages are clean, yeah. <laughs> not, not phone through or something like that. Yeah, yeah, totally. Now, this is a book that people avoid. And the problem is, is that we let our ideas of Revelation be formed, informed by culturally what is seen as revelation and there's a lot of misunderstandings and misconceptions that we've talked about so we're going to uncrisp some of your bible pages when we look at that but let's start at the very beginning just sort of read through this chapter 1 verse 1 <clears throat> the revelation of jesus christ which god gave him to show his servants what must soon take place he made it known by sending his angel to his servant john who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and who hear what is written in it, for the time is near. And then, verse 4, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. So, that's setting the stage. And we talked about this in the video before, the video talked about it, is that, and it's important to understand how this book begins is that these are letters, essentially. Hey, Betty. These are letters that are written to seven churches in Asia Minor. Um, and these seven churches were facing different kinds of hardship. Um, and if you read through kind of what it is that is being talked about, this is a, in a thumbnail. Uh, the church in Ephesus and per Pergamum and in Thyatira were enduring false teachings. We know about Ephesus, right? I mean, in some of the stuff, this is not new to us. We've read Paul's letters. Paul was also trying to contend with some of these things, too, writing to churches. So, so this will not sound foreign to us. Uh, churches in Smyrna and Philadelphia were undergoing some kind of persecution. 
And then churches in Sardis and Laodicea were uh, suffering from the scourge of complacency. <laughs> they were just kind of dialing it in as churches, right? So Paul, or excuse me, John writes to each of these and, uh, and talks to them about this. What's interesting is the way they're laid out in the letter, the actual order, is that there's a, a reason for it. Um, they are, it is written in an order that suggests a travel route. Okay, so here's a, here's a picture. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia. So it's, it's, it, it's, it's interesting because it's written like a courier. Would just start here and just move around to these cities. So that, that, that's an interesting little thought uh, to how that goes and the care to which that is all laid out. Most of the churches are acknowledged for a mix of good and bad, okay? Which, again, is very similar to what we saw in Paul. Um, although, it's interesting that nothing bad is said about Smyrna and Philadelphia, and nothing good is said about Sardis and Laodicea. Sardis, Presbyterian Church. There you go. That's right. That's right. You know? So, but, um, yeah, that's just kind of interesting that, that there's that thing there. But the main message, and this will not be surprising to us, churches are implored to stand firm and to not make concessions in face of the evil that's inherent in the Roman Empire. Okay? So, that's a big part of kind of what the first few chapters are talking about. Um, the, so, in the first four chapters, in this section that these are direct letters to these seven churches, you don't find as much of the crazy, bizarre symbolism that you find in, in obviously, in other parts of Revelation. To a degree, this reads a little bit more like some of Paul's letters, although there is some of the bizarreness, just not, not as much. Okay? It's when you get to chapter 4, um, that, and 5 in particular, uh, which is where we're going to jump to, that you really start seeing stuff that makes you just kind of go. But again, just roll with it. Don't try to figure it out because it's not really about figuring it out. All right? So jump with me to 5.1, if you will. Then I saw on the right hand of the one seated and on the throne a scroll written on the inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who, loud voice, who was worthy to open the scroll and break the seals. And no one in heaven and under earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep bitterly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders a lamb standing as if it had been slaughtered, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of the one who was seated on the throne. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. They sing a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slaughtered, and by your blood you ransomed God's saints for every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests serving our God, and they will reign over the earth. And then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels surrounding the throne of the living creatures and the elders. They numbered myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands singing with full voice. This will sound familiar. Worthy is the land that was slaughtered, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Blessing and honor, glory and power be unto him, be unto him. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under earth and in the sea and all that is in them singing to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the church and the elders fell down and worshiped. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What the heck does all that mean? Well, let's look at this. Um, how does it get set up? Um, what, 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 what is the 
conundrum that is happening here at the very, very beginning. There is a what that cannot be what? Right. And so who is there an initial assumption can open this scroll? And by who, I don't mean a person. It's more of a symbol. Verse 5. All the people. The lion on the tribe of Judah, the root, has conquered. Right? So this image of power and might, and that that verb conquered is really key. Um, The Greek word for there is... Uh, is, is, it's also victory. It's, the Greek word is nike. And if you write that out in English, so we have a shoe company, actually, it's a lot more than shoe company, that means victory. It means conquered, power, might, all right? <clears throat> um, but what happens? Can this line, the tribe of Judah, that's all powerful and Nike ish, can they, can they, uh, can it can it open it? Doesn't really say, does it? But then what happens in verse six? Who who is introduced into the scene? The lamb. The lamb, right? And then what we find in verse nine? What happens? The lamb does what? <clears throat> the lamb doesn't actually do it, but what is it said that the lamb can do? Can open the open scroll, the scroll. Mm-hmm. right? So, um, so this is, this is great. So Revelation begins, and this is a, a huge part of the book, with contrasts. You've got worldly power, which in a larger sense is directly speaking about whom in their context? The Rome, the Roman Empire. All right? Rome is never mentioned in here in this part, but this is exactly what a reader in this context would have known was being talked about. All right, <clears throat> and then God's power, which is represented by what? A lamb. All right, um, and not just a lamb, but a what lamb? Slaughtered lamb. A slaughtered lamb. All right. Um, so we have already had their conquered Greek Nike or Nike. Nike was a Roman goddess of victory, a very important symbol in Roman Empire. So it, it, it is a direct reference to the Roman Empire without being a direct reference to the Roman Empire, which is really kind of interesting. All right, so people are expecting a lion, David, and then a lamb appears. All right, <clears throat> I love this. It's not just a lamb, it's a slaughter lamb, but even, even the language for lamb is like a diminutive lamb. So I call, I've, I've taken to call it fluffy. All right, and in this formula... Fluffy beats Nike. Huge contrast of powers. Nike meets Fluffy, and, and, and Fluffy gets the nod. Fluffy is the one that can open the scroll. So, again, context. Rome, conquest, all that kind of stuff. Fluffy <laughs> is the diminutive lamb that was slain, and as it turns out, this is the better one. So you see about this, the kind of powerful message that this was sent to the people that they're understanding, okay, of hope and hanging there-ish and all that kind of stuff, all right? So then we get this long diatribe in three chapters about these seven seals that are opened. Um, this whole section is designed to reassure Christians that their deliverance is near and enemies will not persevere. And the Lamb that we just met opens all the seals. So go to chapter 6, verse 1. I'm not going to read all these. But just to give you a sense. Then I saw the Lamb open one of the seven seals and heard one of the four living creatures call out, as with the voice of thunder, Come! I looked, and there was a white horse. Its rider had a bow, a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. I love that. (laughs) When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature call out, Come! And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people would slaughter one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature call out, Come! I looked, and there was a black horse. Its rider held a pail of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures, saying, A quart of wheat for a day's pay, and three quarters of barley for a day's pay, but do not damage the olive oil and the wine. 
When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature call out, Come! I looked, and there was a pale green horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades followed with him, etc., etc. Get down to it. So, what do we have here? We have the four what of the what? Four horsemen of the apocalypse. Exactly. Another image that's been co-opted by our understanding. All right, walk me through uh, the first horse is what color? White. All right, and then it says it's rider something. What does it say about the rider? Um, had a bow. Had a bow. All right, so, um, so that's a symbol for uh, conquest. All right, military. All right, second horse. What color is the second horse? Red. All right, we'll do red. And then what, what does it say about the rider? Had a sword. A sword. Um, what else does it say? from the earth. All right. So we've got basically war here that's going on. Yep. All right. Third color is what? Black. Black. All right. What does it say about the rider? Scales. What else does it say about it? Voice of the midst of the four-limbed creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a day's pay and three quarters of barley for a day's pay, but do not damage the olive oil and the wine. So there is some kind of rationing of food that's going on here, scarcity. All right, so since it's talking about food, we're going to call that famine. All right, and then the last one. Pale green. What does it say about the... So, <clears throat> the interesting thing about this is there's a logic to this from, again, the perspective of a persecuted people. When a big, powerful empire comes into conquest, all right, it's going to lead to what? War. All right? When war comes and there is bloodshed, and there is death, all right, that is going to lead to a lack of resources and people starving. And when people are not getting nourished and fed well, or when crops are not grown well, you're going to wind up with illness and sickness and death. So we, we, we tend to think of these four horsemen, the apocalypse is like this, blah, blah, blah. But all this is, really, is just... Uh, an explanation symbolically of what happens when empire comes in and dominates is all these things follow suit. It's just the way that it's explained. Um, so the white horse represents conquest, the red represents bloody strife or war, black represents famine, and the pale green represents pestilence or death, and all are logical consequences of empire. Okay? So it's, it's, it's not that we're, you know, one day we're going to be walking and look out on Providence Road and here come these four colored horses and oh my gosh, Jesus is coming back. That's not what this is. This is their way of symbolically helping the people to cope with what they were experiencing. Okay. Um, so then we get the more of these seals. The fifth seal talks about Christian martyrs, of which there were plenty at that time. The sixth seal describes cosmic disturbances that are part of God's punishment on the wicked. So we are now beginning to see that, that it's not just the people that are being affected, but it's, the, it's, 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 it's the, not just the earth, too. It's bigger than that, all right? Um, and then we get this interesting in chapter 7, there's kind of this uh, uh, halftime, <laughs> if you will, um, uh, before the seventh and final seal depicting the angels holding back the four winds so that the servants of God can be marked on their heads. When the seventh seal is opened and reveals angels blowing seven trumpets, each one causing additional plagues upon the earth and the cosmos. So what is interesting about this is it starts with what the people had experienced in a lot of ways already. But then, as it progresses, it, sh it's, it shows that empire will not just lead to these things for the people. It leads to the whole dismantling of the cosmos. Empire at its, at its 
purest evil will unravel everything. Does that make sense? So trying to cast that pretty, pretty big. So we've had seven seals, and then we get uh, some chapters of, uh, of seven trumpets. And when you read these, you will note a parallel between the seven trumpets and some of the plagues that are in Egypt. The symbolism is intentional, scholars think, because in the same way that the plagues were part of God's act, were, were seen as God's action um, to, to free the people from the empire of Egypt, all right, these seven trumpets are God's action uh, to free the people from their bondage uh, in, in a subject to empire. Um, so you'll see a, some of the similarities if you remember back to Old Testament. Hail with fire and blood, mountain falls into the sea, star fell from heaven. I mean, they're not direct um, things. They're, again, much more... When you have hail, that was one from uh, Old Testament. Locusts was another one. But some of these others are, again, of the dismantling of the cosmos. Mountains falling into the sea, stars falling from heaven. Third of the moon goes away, stars, sun are struck, caliber of angels released. So it serves the sa- generally the same purpose as we found in, in Exodus. All right, we get another interlude. So I guess this is maybe more of a hockey game than a, than a, than a football game because uh, they have two, two per- three periods, two breaks. So we get another one before the seventh trumpet. So you see the pattern that's happening here, okay? At the seventh trumpet, the king of the world is now the kingdom of Christ and the suffering on earth ends. And Revelation is not a linear book because there's still more to come. You would think when you get to this point, it's like, hey, we're done. But, but it, Revelation does not operate linearly because it's apocalyptic writing. It's a vision. It's like a dream. And when you have a dream, it doesn't operate linearly. It's like... I'm at work. Okay, now I'm at the beach. What happened? You know what I mean? It sort of operates that way. Same, same sort of thing here. Uh, let's see. Turn to chapter... I'm trying to think about what I want to talk about here. Um... So now we have the build-up, and you remember from the video about the battle that didn't actually wind up happening, but there still there was a big up for the battle. So now we're kind of being introduced to the main players in this battle. Um, a lot of symbolism here. In chapter 12, um, we, we kind of get a, a more of a taste of it of what's happening in, um, in heaven, because, again, this is a cosmic battle. Um, we, are, we meet the pregnant woman. This would have been a symbol for uh, the nation Israel, the people of Israel, giving birth to the Messiah, the one who is to come. Uh, we get the dragon that is intended to be Satan or sort of the, 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 the embodiment of evil. There's mention of a sea beast. This was directly referring to the Roman Empire. Um... We get an earth beast that was, is, is, is meant to depict sort of the false prophets uh, that, had, that had existed. Um, yep, so those are kind of the main characters of what's happening here. Now, what you have a lot of times is you have like uh, John Hagee. Is it John Hagee? Uh, in Texas somewhere, that you know, guy that, that he, he's written all kinds of books on Revelation, he tried, and others have tried to translate, you know, this is whoever this is today, and this is whoever it is today, and all that kind of stuff. But it's really meant to be contextually about what it meant back then in that time. We get that 666, if you turn to chapter 13, 18. The mark on the forehead... Um, this calls for wisdom. Let anyone with understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a person. Its number is 666. And we talked about how that, again, was referring to 
probably Nero Caesar, who was uh, around that time uh, the emperor of Rome, um, was was very hostile towards Christian community. So this is, you know, if a if a if a a Roman citizen, generally speaking, got a hold of this letter and saw where it said there's a you know a person number of a person it's number six hundred sixty six. They would have been like, okay, whatever. But when these early Christians read it, because of uh, gematria, this sort of Hebrew numerical numerology they had, they would have read that and they would have known exactly who he was referring to. So this was a way of the letter calling out the emperor secretly, symbolically. All right. um, but again, that's one of the many things that's misunderstood about Revelation, we've talked about that last week. I think I mentioned to you about the first, very first tank of gas I bought that came out at $6.66. Right. So, and I ended up getting an additional six ninety whatever because the lady gave me a quarter. Um, so, more sevens. Seven plagues poured out in bowls. These are, again, a reminiscent of the plagues, plagues in Egypt. But they are cast upon those affiliated with the empire. So that's a little bit of a different thing. Um, if you flip over to 16, we're kind of skipping around a little bit here. Um, we talked about this last time. Uh, verse six, chapter 16, verse 16. And they all assembled at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. And we, you know, again, commonly referred to as Armageddon, the place of the uh, uh, final battle at Medigo was kind of, and we remember we talked about how um, the the location of this very 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 ancient city was on a couple of different crossroads. It was a common place for warring armies to meet because it was Grand Central, and so it was a place that saw a lot of battles. So in this vision, um, it it becomes a very natural place for this cosmic battle to take place. And again people in that context would have known it. Um, nowadays, it's the name of a B-rate Hollywood movie um, with Bruce Willis and uh, Ben Affleck and Liv Tyler that's fun to watch if you don't have anything else to do and it's raining on a Saturday. Um, Mountain of Medigo. It's that kind of thing. So we've got all of this, we've got all of, just to take stock, okay, from what we've read so far, skim through or hit highlights on. We have this empire that is doing all these things. It is decimating the people, but it's going deeper than that. It is unraveling the cosmos. And so now the whole cosmos is at war trying to fight back or prepping for this war, rather. We've got a place where it's happening. We have all of these uh, effects that are, I mean, it's, it's just, it's escalating. Everything is kind of escalating, right? Um, when we get to chapter 17, we, there mentions Babylon specifically. Um, Babylon, we all know, remember from Old Testament, was a foreign nation. Destroyed Jerusalem in 587 BCE, took Hebrews into captivity for a generation. In Revelation, um, the writer in this vision uses Babylon as code to refer directly to Rome. Okay? Now again, modern day people will see Babylon and they'll think, oh, that's in Iraq or Iran. And so this is talking about, you know, Iran is the, but that's not it. This is referring backwards, not forwards, drawing on their history of this terrible empire and the terrible thing they did to, to understand uh, what, what Rome was doing. Uh, and so we get in here the account of the fall of Babylon and Rome that's accounted for and celebrated. Again, this is sort of a foreshadowing because when empire does what empire does, it cannot stand forever. Now, this, ironically, became a true prediction, right? The, the, the Revelation is not about predicting the future. Um, it's about giving hope to people in their circumstances. But the fact of the matter is that um, Rome did fall because when empire, uh, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And, so we, and this is not the only instance we've seen it happen in human history. Uh, but that is what happened. It's, it's accounted for in this book as a way of sort of providing hope for what it was, what it is that was coming. Um, 
the false prophets that we met before as part of this battle are thrown into a lake of sulfur, which certainly did not feel very good. Um, yep. But it, again, the cosmos is fighting back now. The Almighty, the Lamb that was slain is, 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 is that's where the power is. We've already determined that. And so now the world powers are essentially being called out and being put on trial, if you will. There's some trial, there's some trial language that's in here that you'll notice. All right. Skipping ahead to 20, we find the final destruction of all evil. Satan is thrown into a bottomless pit. Um, the bottomless pit is mentioned specifically because obviously if you never hit bottom, you really can't ever think about how you might get out, right? So um, Christ reigns for a thousand years. This is one of the things that rapture theology will kind of uh, has extrapolated and said, yeah, you know, when everybody gets lifted up in heaven, there's this whole thing. And then Christ reigns for a thousand years. Um, it's sort of lifted out from this in this context. Um, Satan is released again. Don't ask me why. And thrown into a lake of fire and sulfur with the false prophets. So Satan is dropped into a bottomless pit and then also is then thrown into a lake of fire. Um, just to make clear what happens. And then interestingly enough, death and Hades are thrown into a lake of fire. So this is kind of interesting. You have the personification of evil that's thrown into a lake of fire. And then you have these not personifications, but these um, death itself is done away with. All right. And this is where you get the really pretty language of 21 um, that is read at a lot of funerals, okay, which is an interesting way of sort of reading it. Uh, chapter 21, verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Um, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for a husband. So think about this. What is, what, where is the movement in rapture theology? In rapture theology, where, where, where there's movement, and it's up. up. Everybody's being taken off earth to go up. But what does it say here in Revelation 21? Coming down. And who's coming down? The New Jerusalem. Yep. The New Jerusalem and God is coming down. So, so think about that contrast. Rapture theology, which again is not biblical, is saying God stays where God is and God brings all the good people up to God to get off the bad earth. All right? But what Revelation actually says is that God comes down to the earth, which feels very familiar because who? Jesus. Correct. Right. All right. Um, the other thing that is good to note, and our, 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 even our NRSV translation, or my NRSV translation, and I'm guessing probably yours, um, does a little bit of a disservice in chapter 21, verse 1, when it says, New heaven and new earth. The actual Greek word here means renewed. Mm. Does anybody have anything like that in, in, in your... It says new heaven. <laughs> yeah, most, most of them say new heaven and new earth. Um, it's a little bit of a disservice in the translations, and that's important because there's a big difference between new and renewed. New fits, again, that kind of rapture theology thing that, that, that the earth that we're going to eventually be on is not this earth. There are actually, and, and, and I've, I've actually, and maybe you have too, come into contact with well-meaning uh, evangelical Christians who, who live and die by rapture theology who will tell you to your face that we do not need to do any creation care, we don't need to recycle, we don't need to try and um, um, you know, maintain greenhouse gases or any kind of stuff because it doesn't matter. This world is going to be destroyed anyway. Um, did I tell you the story about in Mount Airy when we were trying to do curbside recycling? We were trying to get curbside recycling, and I was part of the group, and I actually had people that got upset at me, first of all, because I was a pastor and I was doing it, but also they saw our efforts of trying to help the earth as running counter to what the Bible said. So, like, like God's going to destroy the earth. you trying to save the earth. You're working against God. That was kind of where their 
thinking was. So the, it is actually a renewed heaven and a renewed earth. So it is the same heaven and the same earth. Um, but it is totally transformed. Uh, but the fact that it's not a different one, that's key. So the city comes down. God comes down, not us up. God comes down. We get specific measurements of this new city. Um, we get a lot of gems that are listed. If you read through it, it's just a lot of gems. It's like, why are all these gems? Well, a good Hebrew person would have known that these gems happen to be the gems that are found on the breast, breastplate of the high priest. So the city itself is now the high priest in a way, if you want to look at that. It's kind of neat. And then we have Christ that rules um, in 22. And of course, what does not happen in any of this? There is no huge battle, right? There's, there are consequences as if a battle took place. Satan is thrown into a bottomless little pit and lake of fire, false prophets, that kind of stuff. But there actually is not a battle that happens. Everything gets set up. But then we go back to the lamb, and it's like that nugget at the very beginning of the book sort of sets the thing. Everyone's setting up for the line and the conquest and the Nike. I erase it. Um, but in the end, that is not what decides anything. It is fluffy, <laughs> diminutive power that actually rules the day and sets the cosmos right. It takes all of this stuff and all of the other things that happens and transforms it back to a renewed heaven and renewed earth. And God coming down, not the people going up. So now you understand Revelation, right? <laughs> Better. Um, how was um, that interpretation of Revelation um, decided? Was it were they were there great uh, arguments about what it really meant, or did? It, translations sort of determined it or I mean had to have been a process since there's so many divergent ways of thinking well I think the I mean this has always been what it has said because again it's written we know we know who it was written by who it was written to when we look at it historically like we've done we know who this message is going to we know who it is about when it's referring to these Nike and Babylon and the Sea Beast and all those kinds of things, right? We know who they're referring to because it is, we, we go back to the original context. But I think the reason that the powers that be really wrestled with putting this in the book is that they, I think they knew that it was so out there um, in its imagery that it would it would potentially be misunderstood. Also, it's kind of frightening because remember we talked about last time that <clears throat> it's not really written for the Romans or whoever of our time saying you need to get straight. It's writing to the people in inside, for lack of a better term, to keep the faith, stay on the straight and narrow because look, in the end, you're going to be all right. Um, the real challenge has been um, that throughout, and, and, and we're going to talk about it just a second, but um, there, was a, there was a point in human history in the 300s, I forget the exact date, when a, found, a, a major, major, major event in the Christian faith happened that totally changed things from there on in. Do you remember, do you remember anyone what that is? Now, um, there are two schools of thought on this, and I'm, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself, but we'll talk about it in a second. One school of thought is that Emperor Constantine met Jesus, and because he's emperor and has all powerful, he said, we are now a Christian empire, and yay us, all right? The other, the other, the other interpretation is Constantine started to see the growth of the churches all over, 
and started to realize that it would be potentially advantageous for him to align with that. And if they were to ever get big enough, it could be a threat to the power. All right. So it is tremendously politically shrewd move. <laughs> you say, yeah, you're one of us now. Yay, we're you. Yay, we're all that together. And so now Constantine becomes the head of the church and automatically the head of every, everything. When that happened, it institutionalized Christianity. It went from being sort of this more organic, and it was already kind of shifting to more structure. But when this happened, it really institutionalized it. And at this point, and this is what I'm getting to, at this point, um, Christianity became aligned with power. And that changed everything. And so if you, if you look at from here to now, throughout human history, where Christianity flourishes, up until now, it has always flourished where the world's greatest power has been. So, it started over in Rome when Constantine did his thing. Um, it, it, it moved, I mean, churches were elsewhere, but, but eventually get over to Europe, all right, and that was certainly where a lot of the world's powers were, Middle Ages and beyond and that kind of thing. Um, and then the uh, 1400s, something like that, my American history is bad. Um, what happened? Hopped on a boat. Came over to North America. All right, so we became sort of the center of Christianity in the world, always aligned with power. Now, what is happening now and has been happening for the past four or five decades is it is the center of Christianity if you're talking about just sheer converts is no longer in North America it is in Latin America it is in Africa and Asia which are not the center of the world's power Um, you find the church declining in Europe has been for years you find the church declining in North America as we all know um, the church is flourishing for the first time in a long time where the center of the world's power is not. So I don't know if this is answering your question, Linda, but, but, but that's why people in Latin America will totally understand Revelation. That's why people in Africa, Christians in Africa, totally get Revelation. All right? um, we really struggle with it, and that's been our biggest bugaboo in this country, is we are the empire, we're looking at it through the lens of empire, and this doesn't make sense to us. Because no one's going to read this and go, yeah, I'm, I'm, part of the, I'm part of the crew that gets thrown into the bottomless pit. No one's going to want to do that, right? So that's the struggle for us, is we have to read it inversed, um, being who we are and where we are. Um, so... The interpretation is not any different. It's just we have been reading it from the wrong angle. I guess is what I'm saying. Okay. All right. So, summary. It's apocalyptic writing. Uh, heavenly symbolic in nature, as you know. Not meant to be read as a code for future events or for our time. That's pointless. And it's unbiblical. <laughs> Um, number seven, you probably notice, is big. Seven, of course, symbolizes perfection. Um, and again, if you don't learn anything else from this entire year journey, don't <laughs> stick an S at the end of the thing. I'm only halfway teasing on that. Um, I love this quote. I'm kind of wrapping up. No mention of Antichrist anywhere in Revelation. Talks about evil, but not personified as we've always pictured it. It's not about scaring people into submission, but about instilling hope and radical change in the midst of difficult odds. It is not advocating war and fighting, but the power of nonviolent resistance and love. Fluffy beats Nike and doesn't have to fight a battle. All right? That's the best image. Yeah. Fluffy beats Nike. Yep. All right. So... In summary of everything that we've talked about, um, for most of the two centuries, Christianity continued to spread and grow, uh, but it remained low-key. That all changed with Mr. Constantine here, ruled from 306 to 337. Supposedly has a vision from Jesus. 
you can believe that if you want. Just know there's another side to the coin as well uh, that others uh, contend. Began a slow process to conversion to Christianity. In 313, he issued the Edict of Milan that embraced Christianity as the official religion of the Roman Empire. That changed Christianity forever. Um, instantly, overnight, Roman citizens woke up and they were like, oh, I'm Christian, okay. Um, Christianity was no longer a secondary religion, but it was an institution. From then on, Christianity would follow the world power, as I mentioned before, as a de facto state religion, Rome, Europe, America. And now we're in a period where it's kind of splintered and is not there, which is really fascinating. Um, so, And by, by, by the center of Christianity, I just want to clarify, I'm talking about where the, gro- where the greatest growth of, of Christians are. So, I mean, we've got people in our, in our government that will contend that we are a Christian nation and will trumpet that. But, but, when you, but when you look at where the actual growth is, it's in Latin America, Asia, and Africa. Um, so, what do we take from everything that we've done? Well, we've probably learned what we knew going in, that interpreting the Bible is a tricky thing. Um, I can't remember if we did this in Old Testament, if we did just humor me, but open, uh, open your Bible to a book you probably haven't read in a while, Song of Solomon, which is right before Isaiah, if that's helpful. Did we do this exercise in Old Testament? I don't think so. Okay, all right. I don't remember. Good. Chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. All right. Listen to the Word of God. How beautiful you are, my love, how very beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats moving down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up before the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them is bereaved. Your lips are like a crimson thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built in courses. On it hang a thousand bucklers, all of them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that feed among the lilies, etc., etc. All right, so if I asked you to draw this, what would it look like? Well, when I was in seminary at the very beginning of the Old Testament class, one of my professors had, had a split into groups and gave us a piece of newsprint and did exactly that. Um, and this is what we came up with, this lovely, lovely lady. <laughs> so, and we, we did talk a little bit, I don't know if we talked about this specifically, but I know we talked about at the beginning of class, different types of literature, different kinds of things. This is obviously, I hope to God, this is not what the writer of Song of Solomon was referring to. So, this is why we've got to be really careful about how we read the Bible and therefore how we interpret it. We have to know what is the intention of the reading in order to know how to understand it. Um, this, is, this is why we have to be careful when we say we believe the Bible literally or the Bible is the literal word of God or something like that. We've got to be careful about using that word. Truth is not always about being literal. Uh, the Bible has all kinds of literature. I know we've talked about this before. It uses all kinds of rhetorical devices. That's the beauty of the Bible. It's chock full with all this kinds of stuff. We just have to be cognizant of what it is we're reading when we're reading it. The Bible can be truthful without being literal. Correct. So, y'all know some of this stuff anyway, but just in summary, got to take the context into consideration. Um, when, when I am looking at a passage for a sermon, like for instance, right now I'm reading Isaiah 35. Um, I will read 34 and I will read 36. If I'm uh, preaching on Luke uh, 11, I think that's a Good Samaritan. It's either the Good Samaritan or the Prodigal Son, I forget. I'll read back a chapter or 
whatever, and I'll read forward a chapter. Um, scripture is not meant to be read in isolation, right? So you got to know the context that it's in and the history. Um, there's a fancy seminary term we call exegesis. You heard of this before? All right. So pulling out X, pulling out what is in there, rather than eisegesis, um, which is pushing on to Scripture what we are to believe. Super, super hard to do for anybody. But that's, that's why um, exegesis and focusing on pulling out is like that. It's really important to listen to others and accept the fact that there's always something we can learn. Nobody has it all. Um, I had a friend one time that preached a six-sermon series on, I think it was the Good Samaritan of the Prodigal Son. Six entirely different sermons on the same scripture, um, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, I don't know that I want to try that, but I like the fact that you do it. And so, so with that, <laughs> you made it. All right. Gone through the whole Bible, back and forth. Um, I really appreciate y'all uh, uh, being part of this and sticking this out uh, for whatever portion or, uh, that you've been on it. If you've been joining us online, so grateful for that. We're going to see what 2020 brings. I'm going to got a few of the things I need to focus on initially, some uh, things to work on here coming up. But, um, but I, 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 I would welcome any thoughts you have on what you feel would be helpful uh, that I can help lead, whether it's a more in-depth study on a book, whether it's, I, I mentioned the movie uh, kind of thing that I might want to do as well. It's just a different medium. Um, but I'm, I am very interested in knowing how I can help the people in our church grow spiritually and connect more readily with God and each other. And uh, so I would welcome any thoughts you have. Just feel free to them away but this I've been so rich it has. It really has. yeah I'm, well I'm, I'm I'm really grateful I've been, I, I enjoy doing it I haven't done it in a few years I'm, I'm glad I got to do it with y'all so it helps to have you 